0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell of Back to the Bible Canada. We're glad you could be with us as we conclude our series Christmas Unplugged, The Truth Retold with Bible teacher, Dr. John Newfeld. So let's get right into it. And if you have a Bible, open it with me to Matthew chapter two, verse 13, as Dr. Newfeld continues to take us through Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus.
1: Have you ever wondered what to do when Christmas is over? Everyone has left your house and there are loads of things to clean up. The house is a disaster area. Everyone's exhausted. You fall into a a fatigued heap surrounded by wrapping paper and pine needles and chairs out of place and probably all in one room where they're not supposed to be. A load of dishes just crying out to be washed and a tired spouse who looks at you and says, let's never do that again. Ah, the aftermath of Christmas. No pleasant thought, I assure you. In some ways, the aftermath of the birth of Christ is like that. The Magi have just left, having been warned in a dream not to return to Jerusalem because the ever-jealous madman Herod seeks the boy's life. And so they depart by another way, finding their way slowly back home. Hardly are they gone when an angel, perhaps it's Gabriel again, visits Joseph in a dream and says, "'You'd better take the child and run.'" Herod, in all his murderous madness, will send his troops into Bethlehem, and they'll butcher the child. I want to take you to a text in Revelation 12, 1-5, and listen how John the Apostle describes this event. He uses the dramatic apocalyptic language that is a part of the book of Revelation, and here's what he writes. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and a crown of twelve stars. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. I'm tempted to go through this text verse by verse and line by line and explain its meaning, but time will really not allow for that. But please notice that there is a remarkable similarity between John's account, which is apocalyptic, using highly symbolic graphic images, and the historical account of Matthew. What we see at the outset is that in both of these accounts, the child being born is Jesus. We know this because John said the child will rule the nations with a rod of iron, and there he's quoting Psalm 2, which was one of the the great messianic psalms. Furthermore, both John and Matthew reveal that at the point of Jesus' birth, he is in great danger. But in Matthew, the danger is that of Herod, and in Revelation, the danger is that of Satan, And both accounts have it exactly right. Putting the two accounts together, we can see that at the very moment when Christ was born, his birth sparked off a great spiritual conflict. On one side is Satan and Herod wanting to eclipse the event. And the more I think about this theme, something about the Christmas event becomes clear. No matter how you tell the story of the birth of the Messiah, if you tell it accurately, you will have to tell the story of a great spiritual conflict where hell itself opens its yawning jaws to devour Jesus. And since that did not succeed, hell is not done. Hell wants us to replace Jesus by paying attention to to myths and legends or shopping till we drop or about misinformation from so-called secret gospels of Christ, anything, so you won't hear the real story. You see, every year at Christmas time, I see a competition of two stories. One is a story called Buy, Spend, Party, Trade Silly Stories, Overeat. The other is a story that God himself has stepped into the world in the form of Jesus and with his coming, he has inherited an ancient throne that is David's throne and his throne and his kingdom will grow until one day he will rule the earth. I can't imagine two more different and disparate stories. So let's, in the next few moments, retell Matthew's story. Jesus was born, and sometime after his birth, the Magi show up. They arrive in Jerusalem, and there they're met with the theologians who went to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and from that text established the place where the Messiah was to be born. Herod, who was stirred up because of a jealous rage, determined that he would destroy the child. We now know that it was Satan who inspired him, but the wise men know none of this intrigue. They plan to visit the child, they want to worship him, they want to go back to Jerusalem, they want to tell Herod where he is, and then they want to go home. So let's move ahead to Matthew two thirteen to 15 Now when they had departed, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now it is clear that unless God had intervened, Jesus would have died as a very young boy. But we learned that from the outset, God is determined to protect Jesus. The Bible doesn't tell us how long the wise men were with Jesus. I suspect it was but a day. But if it were any longer, Herod would have entered the city, no doubt, on the very first night. The Magi had already had a dream, and they left by another way. And Joseph, because of the angelic visitation, would have wasted no time packing up Mary and baby Jesus and fleeing. And in truth, there was only one way to escape, and that was Egypt. The border was exactly 160 kilometers away, and by the time Herod would have been aware that he had been tricked, well, they would have been well on their way. According to the Jewish historian and philosopher Philo, who lived in Alexandria, there existed at that time a Jewish population in Alexandria, Egypt, of about one million people. No doubt that's exactly where Mary and Joseph went. Herod would have had no authority there, and among so many Jews, no one would have been able to find them. They wouldn't have stuck out at all. But Matthew, who was a Jew, stops his narrative and makes a comment. And his comment, as is often the case in his book, has to do with the Old Testament. He says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. I want to stop here and tell a story. Years ago, when my wife Kathy and I were on sabbatical, we had an opportunity to visit Egypt. There's an amazing Christian church in Cairo. It was built on a garbage dump, and there, among the garbage and the stench, thousands and thousands of people have been won to Christ, people who are among the poorest of the poor in Cairo. But but how to build a place of meeting where they could gather for worship in such a place? So during Ramadan, when there were fireworks in the city, Christians were blasting out caves along a great cliff at the edge of the garbage dump, constructing seven huge caves with ample seating which would house many worshipers. Above one of the massive caves that would hold as many as 5,000 people, I noticed an engraving on the rock. It showed Joseph and Mary on a donkey, holding Jesus, and below it it said, Out of Egypt have I called my son. You know, I, I looked at that, and I felt a chill go down my spine. It is as if these, the poorest of the poor, were saying, We too have a stake in Jesus, for he lived among us, and he was protected in this place. And he was called to his ministry out of Egypt from this place. And as I stood gazing at that sign, uh, I, I was met by an elderly man. He approached me and he, and he bared his arm to me. And he showed me a tattoo on the wrist of his arm. It was a small tattoo of a cross. And then he pointed at himself and he said, Christian. You know, he spoke no English, but in a second we were in each other's arms. We were brothers. And I looked back at the sign and I said, O oh Lord God. It was out of Egypt that you called your son, and here in Egypt still to this day are the people of the Messiah. So Matthew, viewing the significance of the baby in Egypt, quotes from Hosea 11, verse 1. The context of the verse is a picture of God's great love for Israel. The passage says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I have called my son. Now that passage is speaking about Israel in in bondage in Egypt and of God's great deliverance from the land of slavery. But notice Hosea calls Israel, my son. What Matthew knows is that the entire story of Israel is messianic. God was rescuing them so that through the promise of Abraham, God might through them bless the world. Eventually that would mean the coming of a messiah. And through the promise of David, God would raise up that very Messiah and borrowing on that language of son. Matthew notes that just as Israel was delivered up from Egypt, so also the ultimate son would also come up out of Egypt. In other words, Matthew wants us to know that God orchestrates and controls all of the events by in some fashion repeating the event of deliverance and pointing us to Jesus the Messiah. More about that when we come back.
0: Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus later focuses on the spiritual warfare that surrounds Christianity. Despite all of the darkness that can be found in our world today, Jesus continues to and will always dispel the darkness. He is our sure hope and an everlasting light. Thanks for listening. Well, Christmas is here. I don't know about you, but every year celebrating the birth of Christ always fills me with a rich sense of wonder and gratitude. Does it do the same for you? Our world may choose to overlook the true meaning of the season and instead fill it with good but rather empty traditions. Things like big turkey dinners and giving lots of presents, attending Christmas parties and so on. But as believers, what a privilege and joy we have to know and celebrate the one who is at the center of it all, Jesus Christ. Let's thank Him today in our hearts for coming into this world and redeeming us. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld.
1: God wanted there to be a kind of repeating of historical events, a, a setting up of patterns. Even as God defended Israel and delivered them from Egypt, even so, He protected and defended His Son and brought Him up out of Egypt. But God is also determined to keep Jesus as the centerpiece of the world's hope. Now, every critic will tell you that we have no reference to the massacre of the children in Bethlehem outside of the book of Matthew. And so the critics who say the massacre of Bethlehem never happened will say, look, there's no other evidence of it. If it had, wouldn't we find some other historical record of it outside of the Bible? And to that, I want to respond in two ways. First I weary of the constant assumption that the historical events recorded in the Bible must always be held in suspicion. The overwhelming evidence from archaeological finds points out the historical accuracy of the whole Bible. All the critics are doing is proving that regardless of the mountain of evidence, they will not believe. When at one place the Bible is proved to be accurate, instead of pausing and proclaiming, wow, that's really amazing, they say nothing, but then go on to attempt to find another place that has not yet been verified. And this betrays not scholarship, but a skepticism based on prejudice. But here's my second point. Bethlehem at that time was tiny. The great archaeologist William Albright said that Bethlehem would have held about 300 people. So I would imagine that the number of boys would have been maybe 12. And if you think about all the things that Herod did, this would never have made the news. I mean, he murdered his wife. He murdered his three sons. I mean, on and on it goes. How would anyone care about 12 boys in a small village when compared to all his atrocities? But the real point not to be missed is this. When Christ entered the world, it set off a savage spiritual war in which intrigue, suspicion, hatred, brutality, all of that immediately followed. All hell assembled, attempting to stop what hell saw would follow. And that's the story of Christmas. In the days of Jesus' ministry, he was well known as one who would drive out demons and, of course, heal the sick. The demons often shrieked in his presence as they fled from him. But in his early days, they shrieked as well. They shrieked out of hatred, and they inspired Herod's military to come into this small, sleepy town of Bethlehem and slit the throats of a dozen little boys. And Matthew says this really fulfills all the sorrow that the human race has suffered. Rachel is weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted. Because the demons of hell don't want them to be saved, but their activity will never drown out true hope. God is determined to protect Jesus and also to safeguard the hope he offers and to make sure the gospel will never be drowned out. Perhaps some of you know this, that there are Christians who are in refugee camps, Syria fleeing from the terror of ISIS. Right now, in some places in the Middle East, Christians are being ethnically cleansed. Pray for Christians in Pakistan or in Iraq However few there are left, Iran, Syria right now, Tanzania, Islamic persecutors there are targeting Christian pastors. Right now, Nigeria is seeing more Christians killed than any country in the world where militants are turning the country into killing fields. Stories go on and on. I am personally appalled that the Western media has chosen to be silent in the face of such evil. Satan is clearly saying, if I do not succeed in killing Christ at the time of his birth, I will use killing to make sure that there are places in this earth where his name and his deeds will never be heard. Of course, in our part of the world, it's not open persecution, but misinformation. Commercialism has so destroyed Christmas in the Western world, I'm surprised that the Christian church has not constantly been warning Christians against it. Look, I'm not arguing that we shouldn't buy gifts for our children or our loved ones, but we have allowed greed and self-indulgence to rule our hearts and have forgotten the only legitimate hope for the world. Furthermore, all the mythology surrounding, you know, a fat guy in red tights delivering presents to everyone, the endless speculation about what might be the so-called real Jesus, you know, all that pseudo-intellectual misinformation. The attempts to rename Christmas, well, on and on it goes. All this seems to me just another satanic ploy to erase the story of the incarnation that God came to us clothed in human flesh, that he came to live and to die and to rise from the dead and to offer eternal life to all who might look to him. Furthermore, this same Jesus is rightfully called king. Indeed, he is the legitimate king of the earth whose rule and authority is greater than that of all kings and prime ministers and presidents and dictators that the world has ever seen. His claim to this planet is the only legitimate claim. His reign is unstoppable. But let's let Matthew get to the very end of the account. Verse 22 reads as follows. But when he, that is, when Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. You know, eventually, every dictator dies. And whether it's Genghis Khan or Adolf Hitler or Pol Pot, no wicked ruler remains forever. As an aside, historians tell us that Herod died from a chronic kidney disease and apparently had a very agonizing death that included painful intestinal problems, convulsions in every limb, and gangrene in his genitalia, of all things. And with his death, Rome recognized that none of his sons had the ability to rule over all Israel, so they divided it between the three sons. Archelaus, who ruled Judea, was known to be as cruel as his father. And because Bethlehem was in Judea, Joseph was afraid to go there. Instead, he went back to Galilee, where Herod Antipas ruled. And so they went back to the place where Joseph and Mary were from. And they went to Nazareth in Galilee. And Matthew says this was to fulfill, that he should be called a Nazarene. See, Matthew sees the biblical significance in this. Now it's true that there is no Bible text that says he shall be called a Nazarene, but that's where the significance lies. Nazareth is a town never mentioned, not once, in the Old Testament. And the term Nazarene in Matthew's day was a term of derision. To call someone a Nazarene was to mock them. Every nation has some places that people despise. And Nazareth was, in the time of Jesus, one of those places. And what Matthew has in mind are the kind of prophecies, like in Isaiah 53, where Jesus would be spoken of as one who is despised and rejected. In fact, listen to some of the descriptions that Isaiah gives to the Messiah. Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would have no majesty about him, that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. His lot would be that he would be despised and rejected by men, the kind of man people made fun of and slandered and wanted nothing to do with. I know that some people have written books about the humor of Jesus, and I'm sure that Jesus had humor and knew how to laugh. But according to Isaiah... The enduring memory of Jesus would not be laughter, but rather that he was a man of sorrow, much acquainted with grief, anguish, heartache, suffering. And when Matthew says that he is called a Nazarene in a subtle way, he says, that's what the prophets, all the prophets said he would be like. Yeah, he would be king of the universe, but he would be rejected. Someone who men might despise and reject and make fun of. He would be called a fraud. All the prophets, said Matthew, knew exactly that this would happen. And here's the irony of the story of Christmas. What seems like a nothing event captured the world. So much so that we have set the world's calendar to that very event calling the days of Christ's birth A.D., Anno Domini, Latin for in the year of our Lord. That's the entire point of the event of Christmas, that this is how God entered the world, that he became a man, that he lived among us and died for us and rose from the dead and won over hearts and established what people called his church and will one day come again and rightfully sit on David's throne as earth's legitimate ruler. He will rule all men, some to their delight and some to their everlasting horror. This is our God who has come to live among us. Merry Christmas.
0: John, I like it when you say, this is our God who has come to live among us. And he's come to live among us today, and we live in an unusual world, I think, an unusual time. We see all the things happening in the news. We see the the plight of the refugees coming out of Syria. We recognize our own needs within our own country of the homeless and and poverty-stricken people. Uh, How does the Christmas story speak in to our situation today?
1: Ben, I don't always know the answer to that, but I do think we need to find new ways to celebrate Christmas in some ways. I think every single believer has become caught up in the, the madness of spending and materialism and, and all of these other things. So our, our, our lives are taken up in, in shopping for people who already have a lot. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. God gave to those who had nothing, and I think it ought to inspire us. I think Christmases do invite believers to think and rethink our response to those who are refugees or to those who are of the poorest of the poor, and to say, what has God called us to do? So maybe we need to rethink our traditions, Ben. I don't know, but you know, when I think about your situation, I mean, you've been in the Salvation Army for a long time. This is an
0: important part in your life, too. Yeah. And this is part of your message I think you've given throughout this whole week is we really do need to get back to the core of the Christmas story. What is it all about? Get rid of all those trappings and focus on what happened and what is the relevance to me today?
1: And uh, that relevance has to change the way that I celebrate it. I think that's what we both agree on. So I would encourage uh, the listener on this Christmas day to think about the glory of Christ, his great love for us, the incarnation, but also to say, Lord, transform me to know how to respond to those who definitely need a savior in some area of their lives.
0: Darkness can never extinguish the significance of Christ. He is truly the king of the world. I hope you'll take some time to reflect on that this Christmas and the role you've allowed Jesus to play in your life. And I pray the words of the book of Matthew have challenged you to consider the Christmas story more deeply. Thanks for joining us this week, and don't miss next week as Dr. Newfeld begins a special one-week New Year series called Remembering the Second Coming of Jesus. Until then, have a wonderful Christmas celebration. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day.
1: In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 30 to 33, we read, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will rule over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. What an incredible verse of the Bible as Mary first receives word from the angel that she would give birth to our Savior. We can see that all the prophecies of the coming of Jesus are now fulfilled. He is truly the one who has come to reign and his kingdom is forever. On behalf of Back to the Bible Canada, May I wish you a very, very Merry Christmas. May you enjoy this special time of celebration with friends and loved ones wherever you are with God's richest blessings.